You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. The word I believe uh, God would bring to us today is quite simple. Jesus leads us up the mountain so that we can follow him to the cross. Jesus leads us up the mountain so we can follow him to the cross. So as Christians, a kind of summary, just to give you a heads up where we're going, as Christians, God often grants us wonderful encounters with him. Moments of fellowship and communion where we uh, come into God's presence and it's powerful and it's personal. But ultimately, the way to full communion with God is not just seeking those special experiences as an end in themselves, but rather God calls us to follow Jesus to the cross in lives of self-sacrificial love. So Jesus leads us up the mountain so that we can follow him to the cross. That's the picture I want you to to hold in your minds. And I'm going to try and show you how that comes from our reading today. And we're going to try and explore that idea a little bit. And hopefully God will speak to our hearts and change our lives by his word. So let's first of all, let's talk about mountains. In the Bible, mountains, or to be more precise, mountaintops, are the place where people go to meet with God. God made a covenant with Noah on a mountain we think is called Ararat. Abraham uh, met with God on Mount Moriah as he was about to sacrifice his son. God met with him and renewed his covenant and his promises to him uh, to bless the whole world through him. At Horeb or Sinai, uh, Moses saw the burning bush and gave the law to Moses and to the people of God on top of the mountain there. It's also the same place where Elijah met with God. The temple of God, the meeting place of God and mankind, is of course built on Mount Zion. And the psalmist, figuratively speaking, aside from all the specifics, figuratively speaking, the psalmist amongst in many places, but just to take one example, Psalm 24 says that we go up the mountain of God to seek his face and to be in his presence. So we have this biblical imagery, you go up to the top of a mountain to meet with God. And in our Christian lives in popular kind of evangelical culture, certainly the culture I grew up in, we often also talk about mountaintop experiences as uh, in the Christian life. When we've had a period of time when we felt especially close to God. Maybe we've gone away to a conference, like uh, some of the guys are going away to Life and the Spirit this week. You go and have this special time when, uh, you know, something clicks and you feel especially close to God. You feel like he has called you away somehow, filled you afresh with uh, new power and new insight and new understanding and, and set you on your way. And so here in this passage, we see the mountaintop experience par excellence. Peter, James and John go with Jesus up a mountain and some pretty unusual things happen. This, uh, the, 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 the scenario happens at a turning point in John's gospel. It's important for us to recognize that. It's a turning point in John's gospel. Imagine if you're like a, a cinematographer, if you were making a film of Jesus' life, the first eight chapters of Jesus' life, or the first seven and a half chapters of Jesus' life, you're sort of focused. Imagine you're standing, uh, say, in Jerusalem with a massive zoom lens looking out towards Galilee, watching everything Jesus does, and you're watching his ministry, the beginning of it, and it's unfolding, and him zigzagging across the Sea of Galilee and so on. You're looking at it from that angle. But in chapter 8, it's the first time the camera sort of swings around and takes position, if you like, from Galilee, looking over towards Jesus with Jerusalem behind him. And the first time we see, really, the cross in the background. And from that point on, when we're, we've gone from seeing Jesus walk towards us, now we're kind of standing behind him, and walking him he's walking towards the cross, there's this uh, angle switch. 
as the cross comes into view. And just before our passage today, a few really interesting things have happened. First of all, Jesus has asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter has come out with this astonishing, out-of-the-blue confession that God himself has given to Peter, this insight, you are the Christ. And uh, Jesus and Peter have this exchange where, Peter, where Jesus tells him how significant that recognition is. You are the Christ. And then Jesus follows that with, now Peter's beginning to understand, the disciples are beginning to understand, uh, Jesus begins to talk then about how he's got to be arrested by the uh, chief priests and the leaders of the people, how he's going to be uh, suffer, he's going to suffer and he's going to be killed. And as he explains that this suffering, the shadow of the cross begins to fall across the story, he begins to explain these things. Peter then says, it's, don't be silly. That's not going to happen to you because you're the Christ. And you know, Jesus rebukes Peter harshly. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then after rebuking Peter, he re-emphasizes this. In fact, he goes even further. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Follow in my footsteps if you want to come after me. For whoever would try to keep hold of their life is going to lose it. But whoever would lose their life for my sake will keep it. Whoever isn't ashamed of me and my cross by implication. I won't be ashamed of in the age to come. That's happened just before our reading today. And then Mark writes for us, he says this in verse 2, after six days. Now, it's a small point, but Mark hardly ever notes the time. I think the only other place is in uh, the Passion Narrative. He, marked, he notes the time. And what he's saying is this is a continuation. This, we're still talking about the same stuff. This isn't a change of scene. This isn't a fade to black and new topic coming to view. We're still talking about the same thing. And uh, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus takes them up a, a large mountain, probably Mount Hermon, where there wouldn't be any people there. So what's gone before frames what is happening now. And then these really unusual things happen. And what's going on in this passage really is Jesus' identity as the Christ is being affirmed. So, actually, what's going on is kind of a match for what has gone before. Peter confesses that Jesus is a Christ. Now we get to see for ourselves kind of physical evidence that that's true. Five extraordinary signs happen to confirm what Peter has said. Firstly, Moses appears on the mountain. I just, I mean, this is mind-blowing for me. This is like, what is this? Is this time travel uh, wormholes. I don't know what's going on here, right? But something incredible is happening. Moses appears on the mountain. And we get these echoes again, like we had at the baptism. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy that there's going to be someone greater than Moses. Someone like Moses, but even greater that we should listen to. Here's Moses and here's Jesus meeting with him. It's a kind of, he's being honored by Moses to show that he's the fulfillment of that prophecy. And there's some really interesting textual links as well. If you look, you don't have to turn to it. If you, if you feel like it, feel free. Exodus 24. Moses goes up uh, Mount Sinai with three named people. Notice here we've got Peter, James, and John in Exodus. It's three people. I can't remember their names. They're very Jewish names that I can't remember. <laughs> goes up with three people, he stays on the mountains, and it's lit, the phrase is exactly the same. After six days, there's a cloud of glory, there's a voice, God's voice speaking. So there's this tight links with Moses. That's the first extraordinary sign. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy about Moses. Then Elijah appears. Awesome. 
And in the Jewish thought of the time, the, the basic thought was Elijah was one of the guys, there aren't many in the Bible who just, uh, he didn't die, he went up to heaven alive. And so there's this theme that if someone's going to come back before the Messiah comes, who's it going to be? It's going to be Elijah. And so there's this idea that Elijah had to appear at some point before the Messiah came. Here he is on the mountain, and Peter, James, and John get to see that. So, And there's also the sense that maybe the Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. But whatever, whatever's going on, he's certainly the Christ. Two things. Thirdly, the cloud of God's glory is there. The glory in Hebrew is the same word as weight in Hebrew, kavod. So there's this tangible, weighty sense of God's presence. I mean, they were terrified. So don't, don't think it's like a, you know, a foggy day on the top of Turner's Hill. There's a sense of God's glory there. And what's happening is, um, the same thing that happened at Sinai, the glory of God is descending. So we're being told really clearly, this is the Christ. The same glory that inhabited the, the temple, uh, made the, the priests and all the worshippers at its dedication fall on their faces and not be able to look up his present at the transfiguration of Christ. So this is someone incredibly special here. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He's actually the fulfillment of the temple. The glory descends upon him, surrounds him and overflows from him. He's not just the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of everything they represent. This is the Holy Spirit himself, manifesting his glory. That's number three. Number four, Jesus is transfigured, literally in Greek, metamorphosed, changed in appearance, and his glory is revealed. So the veil is stripped away. And I I remember reading, I think, or hearing one commentator on this say, you know, the greater miracle in this situation is not the sudden appearance of God's, of Jesus' glory, but the fact that for 33 years, for the most part, it remained completely hidden from our view. That's where for a sudden, a moment, the eternal glory of the sun is unveiled and we see, the disciples see, and through them we get to see, Jesus is the Christ. He is the figure spoken about in Daniel and Ezekiel, you know, this, this incredibly glorious figure. And then, to top it all off, if we're not convinced yet, just in case Peter, James and John, the penny hasn't dropped from there, yes, Peter, you were right, this is the Christ. A voice from heaven says, this is my son. My beloved, listen to him. All of this, these five things, and probably more that I haven't spotted, to say, yes, Jesus is the Christ. More than that, he is the Son of God. Now remember, we said that what's happening here matches what has gone before. So Peter made the good confession this insight from heaven, but he also messed up, didn't he? He didn't really get what he was saying. So having all seen all these things, these five incredible signs, does Peter get what's happening? No. This is Peter, of course, he doesn't. (laughs) Does he understand what's happening? No. He is terrified, he's bemused, he's confused. He suggests that they build three shelters. It doesn't translate terribly well, actually, in NIV, but it's three tabernacles. Three places of worship. So first of all, he thinks that the Christ is basically kind of on a par with Moses and Elijah. They could all have one shelter each. He misses the significance of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus himself. He misses the fact that this is the Son of God. He gets the Christ, but he doesn't, he doesn't get how significant that, that is. And 
He wants to stay there. It's almost like he's saying, maybe I'm reading a bit too much into this, but it's almost like he's saying, see Jesus, I told you you didn't have to suffer. We've gone up a mountain. God's met with us. We can stay here. Kingdom starts here. Everything, you know, none of this suffering, arresting, dying business. Glory starts now. He doesn't yet understand that the mission of the Son of God, the glory of the Son of God, does not, convi- does not consist in his unveiled, unrestrained power, but his glory consists in his love. You know, it's in Mark's Gospel, it is only when we get to the crucifixion that finally a human being confesses the truth. The Roman centurion says, surely this man is the Son of God. And that's significant. Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to see Peter didn't get it. He probably wants us to see that, probably because Peter is the guy dictating these memoirs to him. Peter feels keenly in his own heart that he didn't get it. And probably thinks oh, he was a bit dim. <laughs> so, there's this mirror of the verses that have gone before, acting out Peter's revelation, but also his misunderstanding. We know that Peter did, in the end, finally understand, because this is Peter's gospel, of course. So what is the transfiguration about? Having seen all those things and seen this mirror, what is it about? Well, perhaps it was for Jesus to strengthen him before the trials that he was about to enter. You know, this is the turning point in Mark's gospel. The cross comes into view. So maybe it's there as as an affirmation of him. Perhaps, I don't know if you ever thought about this, perhaps it was for Moses and Elijah. <laughs> what a privilege for them. I don't know if it's time travel or what, I don't really know how it worked, but they probably just came down from heaven, God arranged it. But what a privilege for them to come and meet Jesus face to face. All the fulfillments of the things that God had promised them and spoken at great length to them about, they get to meet him just before he's about to set his face to the cross. Maybe it was for them. <laughs> but I think most of all it was for the disciples and by extension for us. Peter thought that the mountaintop was the goal, but it was actually the cross. Peter was totally unprepared for the cross of Jesus. And the real purpose of the transfiguration, I think, was to give these disciples something to hold on to in the midst of the horror of Christ's passion. So, when he was dishonoured, abandoned and rejected by the people, arrested by the leaders of the people, they could look back and see Moses and Elijah honouring this man and think, yes, he is the Christ. When he was, when his face was covered and he was beaten, when his, uh, his features were bruised and marred and dripping with, with blood running down his face from the crown of thorns, they could look back and remember his face shining like the sun, brighter than the sun. When his his clothes are stripped away and torn and bloodied, they can remember them shining whiter than any person in the world could bleach them. Whiter than snow. When Jesus cries out upon the, from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer, just silence and a few people muttering, who's he talking to at the foot of the cross? They can remember the voice from heaven, this is my son. And of course, in the absolute stillness of death, the greyness, the stiffness, they would remember seeing him more alive than any person they've ever met. 
It was for them for the crucifixion. And it was for them for the lives that Christ called them to as well. Each of them, in their own way, were called to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They would face trials that they could not have conceived of. Unprecedented opposition. That would, without this, would have unmanned them. Would have torn away the foundations of the world. Would have caused them to question the very truthfulness of their recollections. Would have blocked their view of God completely. And yet they had, in their memory, in their experience, this marker of God's favour and affirmation towards the one that they were following. This Jesus is not a figment of your imagination. This is not some made-up human scheme. This is the Son of God. You are on the right path. When all the evidence seems to suggest that the whole world is against you, God is on your side. We know that because Peter wrote about this in his second epistle. In chapter 1, he says, we were there on the mountain of his glory. That's why when scoffers scoff and the whole world says, where is this second coming you're talking about? We don't worry. Because we've seen it for ourselves. And the whole thing, the prophecies of scripture and our encounter with Jesus and the cross itself and our own experience, they all come together to make sense to say, this man is the Christ and we will follow him no matter what. So what's the purpose of the transfiguration? Jesus leads them up the mountain so that they can follow him to the cross. So let's apply it to our own lives. Firstly, just two kind of big applications, I suppose. Firstly, then, I'd say God would remind us and reassure us and encourage us that he wants us to have mountaintop experiences. That's the first point. Jesus leads us up the mountain. We are, by the blood of Christ, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, we are cleansed of our sin and we are able to approach God's throne and actually come into his presence. It's not just some mental game, some trick we have to play with ourselves, but we are actually able to come into God's presence in powerful and real and personal and wonderful ways. Amen? The Christian life is full of wonderful Glorious encounters with the living God. Encounters that transform us and overwhelm us and fill us with sights of his glory. And God, James tells us in James 1.5, talking about wisdom, but it applies generally. God gives generously to all and without reproach. And if we ask, seek, knock, he will pour out his spirit in abundance upon, uh, upon us. Such that we can genuinely have mountaintop experiences. Let's not deride the fact that our Christian faith is a, is a living faith where we can actually have a real relationship with the living God and, and experience wonderful things in his presence. And I would just say, you know, however long you've been a Christian, I, I just want to give you an assurance to whatever your experience is, whether it's weak or rich, whether you've had a, m- a mystical encounter with God or, or not, whether you've experienced the, you know, the Holy Spirit being poured into your heart in a way that you definitely recognize or whether it's just something weak. If you persevere, if you ask God, he will richly bless you and give you an experience. Okay, it won't quite be the transfiguration. Well, I've never heard of that happening. <laughs> yeah. But he will richly reward your perseverance. You know, we talked um, a few weeks ago about um, prayer 
Jesus, you know, private prayer being just like the center of his life and how when we're alone with God, we, we can come into a place of contemplation where we meet with him personally. That's true, folks. Thousands upon thousands of Christians can testify to that. I'll testify to it. And maybe that, I don't know if that's your experience or not, but what I would say is it took a long time for me personally, but if you persevere, God will meet you powerfully in that place. We have the, God can fill us with his Holy Spirit in such a way that it's so obvious to the people around us. They would go, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't even need to tell anyone. And we can become acquainted with his love and it's like it's been poured out into our hearts. That's a, that's a promise of scripture. That he would seal the promises that he's made to us. Our faith, he will seal to us those things if we persevere in seeking him for them. We can encounter God in precious ways by uh, spending time in his word in scripture. It's not always like that. I'm happy to admit that as your pastor. Sometimes reading scripture, Bible study, morning readings is, is hard. Sometimes it's even tortuous. But there are times when you know, the words fade and it feels like God is speaking to you. Personally. These weren't written hundreds of years or thousands of years ago, but, you know, he, he's reading them to you as if he wrote them for you. There are times when we think about his truth, when we, you know, believe it or not, even in, like, thinking about theology, things like that, it can feel like you, you come close to God because you, the, you know, the secrets of his, of his kingdom and his ways just begin to unfold and it just feels so precious. In worship, we have the same thing. We can come so close to God when we're listening to worship at home or worshiping in church or something that we feel like the veil has been rent into and we're standing in his presence. Have you ever felt like that? Communion. We come into a, a real experience of Christ's presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and, and there are people who testify to just something that breaks all the boundaries of all these things, just a mystical encounter with God. It's like they've gone up a mountain and seen him face to face and he's revealed all their secrets and he's seared their hearts with, it, with his love and it's just changed them forever. You know, great men like Martin Luther, you know, he's, Billy Graham, I imagine. They've encountered God in such powerful ways that the whole trajectory of their life has been changed. These are on offer to us as Christians. And I just feel like God's challenge to us this morning, firstly, is this. Are you happy to pursue those things? Have you become cynical about it or tired of looking for it? Just God would say, oh, I'm happy to meet you at the mountain. Jesus will lead you if you spend time in his presence and persevere and keep crying out to him and ask and seek a knock. I will pour out my blessing upon you. In such a way that you will feel like you've been led to the mountaintop with, with Christ. I was reminded, um, of, about fasting. I remember once, uh, I was crying out to God for something like this and saying, God, I just want to be close to you. I want to experience you. I'm so hungry for you. <laughs> and as I said that, I might have told you a few of this story. I felt a gentle, but very wise rebuke from God in my heart. He said, oh, you're hungry for me, and yet you've not fasted one single night for me, <laughs> not one, one single day for me, or prayed one single night to come into my presence. So how hungry are you? But if you are hungry, if you do fast, or you do push yourself in prayer, you do strive to enter God's presence, the gates will swing wide open, and he'll meet with you. 
I just, I was reminded of that because in India we were, I hope you'll bear with me just telling one story. I was just at the graduation, we, I had to commission these 17 graduates. So there they were kneeling on the floor, uh, kneeling up, you know, and I had to put my hand on their head and pray for each one individually. And the pastors from Gilgal, about 10 of, 10 pastors from the various churches, Robinson invited them and they all came and prayed uh, around me as I was praying for them. And I felt the power of the Holy Spirit working through my prayers in ways that just, you know, I haven't felt for quite a while, I have to say. Just the rush, the sense of power moving. And I just, I felt that the Lord brought to mind, you're surrounded by 10 guys who fast and pray more than anyone else you know. And that's why this is happening. Are we hungry for God's presence? To meet with him like this. That's our first thing. God wants us to have mountaintop experiences. They're wonderful, but the passage points us even further. They're not an end in themselves. That's that's the second point, really. You know, if you go to Arding Live Reservoir, it's um, a beautiful day like today. You probably have to wrap up warm. The sun's shining across it. And it's, it's a beautiful lake, but near the dam end, there's this kind of really weird thing, this great big circle that emerges out of the, uh, looks like a giant plug hole. Have you seen it? Just me. <laughs> Go and have a look. It will ruin it for you. <laughs> if you don't like uh, shadows underwater, that sort of thing. Some people have a phobia about them, don't they? Uh, there's this giant circle thing where when the, the re- re- level of the reservoir rises high enough, it spills over and then flows out. That's how a reservoir is supposed to work, I think. I don't think they've all got giant plug holes, but anyway. I don't think I'm imagining it, but I'm looking at your faces thinking, am I thinking of somewhere else? <laughs> anyway, it's there, I'm pretty sure. You, you know? Oh, thanks, Matt. Okay. <laughs> That's what a reservoir is for. A reservoir is supposed to fill and overflow, right? It's the same for us. It's the same for us. God gives us these experiences to fill us so that we overflow. And if that plug wasn't there, the reservoir would fill, and then the sun would shine, and the water would evaporate. And then it would fill, and the sun would shine, and the water would evaporate. And eventually it would become stagnant and stale and dead, and there would be no fish, no life. It would stink. And our lives, if we just pursue God's presence... If we just pursue mountaintop experiences, that's essentially what we're doing. We're cutting off the overflow. And those things become stale. Without the cross, there's nothing, there's no reason for us to have those experiences. You know, actually, I, I wonder, you know, if I look back at the, what's going on in the church in the 20th century, you know, we, you know, you have like the Pentecostal movement of the early 20th century, you have the charismatic renewal in the middle of the century, you had all sorts of, weird and funky things happening at the end of the 20th century. And people hungry for more and more of God. And what's happened with that stuff? What's the overflow of those things? What was God doing? You know, So today, many churches, people are desperate for God to move in power like he did in those great movements, the first, second, third waves of the charismatic movement. But it seems that God is somehow withholding that blessing. Why? Perhaps we haven't yet overflowed with what he wanted us to overflow with. Now, maybe even in, in your own life, maybe you're, you're, that first section of life, I've brought to you that first application, you're looking at it going, yeah, that used to be me, but now it's not. And maybe just as we begin to think about the second point, I just challenge you, maybe that's because God wants you to overflow. He wants you to move from just looking upon his glory to beginning to overflow with his glory, to move from perhaps what were baby steps into maturity and to come to a deeper and more profound understanding of his 
glory. That's what Peter had to do. Without the cross, we only get it half right. Without the cross, we only ever come to a, we'd never really come to a full knowledge of the Son. And therefore, we never come to a full knowledge of God. Without the cross, the brightness of God's glory blinds us. Without the cross, the weight of his glory crushes us. And without the cross, the, the, the sound of his voice deafens us. So we cannot really come into God's presence unless we embrace that command that Jesus gives us. Unless we hear the Father's voice who says, listen to him. And then we listen to him and he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Only when we do that do we come to see the true glory of God. So Jesus leads us up the mountain that we might follow him to the cross. We're called to follow Jesus to something even better than mountaintop experiences, but to know Christ. To know Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. Make this your prayer. It's certainly mine. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, press, I press on to the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards. In Christ Jesus. He wants to live a cross-shaped life. A life of self-sacrificial love. Not content. This is Paul taken up to the third heaven and seen things he's forbidden to speak about. He's met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's not content with those experiences. He wants to share in his Lord's sufferings. That he might share in his glory. God calls us to the way of the cross. And that way is so hard sometimes, so counterintuitive, so difficult, that we need absolute assurance that God is on our side. And so God grants us these experiences. He grants the disciples this transfiguration moment. He grants us the certainty of Scripture, just all the threads of Scripture woven together to show us Jesus is not some made-up religion, but he's the fulfillment of history. All the threads of our experience to show us that this is not a figment of our imagination, but it's the rock on which we stand. But he grants us those things so that when faced with choices that are right but seemingly impossible, the one we follow is worthy of our faithfulness, of our faith. The Father he leads to us to is, uh, richly rewards us. The Christian life is hard. Denying yourself, taking up a cross, it's, you know, dying to yourself feels like dying. Surprise, surprise. You know, as you, as we lay, as, God calls us to lay down our pride and pour out our lives in service of others. That feels like death. And yet, he assures us it is not, it is life. And that is what each of us is called to do in our own way.
just thinking about everyday experiences, you know, in parenthood, getting up one more time to comfort your sick or just grumpy or annoying child <laughs> is pouring out your life. It's hard, but God richly rewards it. Bearing with your spouse one more time with gentleness and kind words. Serving the poor, as we think more broadly. Sharing the gospel with the lost, which is difficult, sometimes humiliating. It's worth it. Spending time with the needy, giving away your money and your possessions, using your time for the sake of others and not for yourself, being faithful and productive at work or in our communities, seeking, instead of being a passive consumer, but instead of just consuming, seeking to fill the world with God's goodness and beauty as we lay down our pride and lay down our lives in service to him. It's hard and sometimes feels futile and sometimes we don't see the result of it. It feels like dying and yet God says, this is even more glorious than the Mount of Transfiguration because this is what the cross is about. This is where you really see me. This is love. As we spend time with Jesus, as we gaze on him and on the cross, as we experience mountaintops or maybe just even little hillocks, he grants us strength to live that way. This isn't just pull your socks up and try harder. God grants us strength to live that life that he calls us to. But he asks that we choose to follow him. To place our trust in his power and live self-sacrificial lives shaped like the cross. So let me ask you then, just to make this more personal, what's your biggest challenge in this regard, in living a cross-shaped life? Where's the, where's the real, where the rubber hits the road? Where's that choice that God has laid upon you where you feel like he's, ask, he's asking you to do something that, yes, is right, but maybe is impossible for you? And he's asking you to choose to trust him or to trust yourself. Maybe it's some personal thing. Maybe it's some sin that you don't want to give up. That you're just allowed to carry on for another week or month or year or decade. He wants you to make that choice. To trust that he will give you more, reward you more richly than that sin ever could. Perhaps there's uh, some relationship thing, some withholding from somebody, something you're supposed to give, some love, some affection, some emotional support that somebody needs, but you don't want to give it to them because you feel somehow they're undeserving or parasitical or something. And he's saying, you know what I would do, and you know how glorious my love is, You know that I will reward you richly and do unspeakably good things if you give in to this and do it my way. Are you withholding? Some, perhaps it's some vocational thing. Maybe in your life you're doing a job or there's a routine in your life where you're doing what is easy, what just comes through routine instead of what God has made you for. 
Just doing what's in front of you instead of thinking, what has God called me to do? How can I lay down my life to him? How, if I look at all the gifts and responsibilities and opportunities he's given me, all the talents that he's filled my life with, and all the good things he's given me, am I wasting my time basically serving myself and just doing something as easy? Or will I do the hard thing and do something for the glory of God that will change the world and fill it with his goodness? Maybe there's some material thing. Some money that you won't give. Some time that you won't share. That you're holding on to. Because you don't want to sacrifice it. God says, my reward is good. My glory makes it certain that it is worth doing what I say. I've given you everything you need, he says. And if you need more, I'll give it to you. But now, choose. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? The promise of these verses is that when we do this, that is when we enter into the true glory of Christ. The greatest mountaintop in the Bible is not Sinai. It's Calvary. The place where we see God's glory most clearly that Peter, Mark wants to show us. Where we come to know him most fully is in his love at the cross. And when we take up our cross and follow him, we meet him there and we find eternal life. When we live in love, we live in God. We get to stay where Peter couldn't. And just as the glory of the resurrected and ascended Christ far exceeds the glory of his transfiguration. Think about that. The glory of the resurrected Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father far exceeds this glory that we read about today. So the glory of a cross-shaped life filled with the love of God far exceeds any mountaintop experience. It's not the mountaintops where God truly meets us, but in the everyday choices to be faithful to him, to obey him, to die to ourselves and to love others. It is harder, more difficult, less obvious. Often, like the cross, it seems foolish, but it is better. When we begin to meet God, not only in the occasional highs, but in the valleys too, in fact, everywhere, we come to know him and live with him, to encounter his glory in every part of our lives to know his love, to love him and overflow with his love in every single part of our life, just as Christ did. As we take up our cross and follow him, as we meet Christ at the Mount of Crucifixion, as we pour out our lives in love, we receive from Christ far more than we ever gave or ever could give. We are transformed into his likeness. Brighter than the sun. Whiter than any snow, any bleach could bleach a garment. We're transformed into his likeness. We shine with the righteousness of the sun. We're wrapped in and filled with the glory of the spirit. We hear the voice of the father speaking, not just over Christ, but speaking to us, to you. You are my child, my beloved. I've adopted you. Welcome. I love you. Echoing down, unchanging down through eternity. I love you. As we step into the fullness of Christ's inheritance. So let Christ 
Let the Lord Jesus lead you up the mountaintop, yes, so you can follow him to the cross and into the fullness of God's blessing. Amen.